We continue this morning in our series that we've titled United in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. If you want to turn over there as we're getting started. Um, today in 8 and 9, uh, sometimes this passage is kind of referred to, thought of as the weaker, stronger brother passage, right? And so I thought, what, a, what better thing that we could do this morning is to identify uh, of some brothers we have here in the church family, which one is weaker and which one's stronger. So, all right, this is, uh, this is Broombaugh Brothers. Uh, just by show of hands, I'm just joking. Uh, in first service, Brian was in there. He voted for Ethan, just so you know that. Um, I don't know which one to be. I've heard stories, but the stories I hear, both of them have great uh, strength at some points. Uh, another, maybe another set of brothers that'd be a little easier to vote on. Uh, these are the Deck Brothers. This is 10 years ago. Sorry, Trevor. Uh, Trevor's on the left here. Uh, Nick is on the right. And I'm going to say in this picture, Trevor's stronger, right? I'm sure he's holding his niece there. Uh, Trevor's stronger. But in the second picture, it's obvious that Nick is stronger because he is holding up Trevor. Is that your wedding day? Right. So everybody held you up on that day. That was good. Um, but really, it's all to get to this last picture. Uh, we need some help here. Uh, four brothers-in-law who have all married Kessler sisters. Um, one of the sisters said to me, she just said, um, all of them are very strong internally because they made the choice to marry strong Kessler women. <laughs> this is not what we're talking about this morning. Uh, and in fact, in this passage, has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. Uh, in fact, the passage is, is kind of interesting because you, you, you see it and you're like, what, is, what, in, what in the world do we have to do with anything like this? What do we have to do now in our day and age in our city? Uh, where's the connection for us? We, there's no temple worship here. There's no sacrifices to other gods what do we do with that? Because that sure doesn't happen here. It might happen somewhere. Somebody after first hour came up to me and said, hey, don't forget, the world has come to us, right? The world is here. We all have to probably at some point intersect with people whose lives have been drastically different. The world is here. Um, the hope this morning is that this passage today is a cause for us all to stop and consider a few things. For all of us to stop and consider the role of uh, Christian freedom and responsibility. Uh, for all of us to stop and consider how our theology and our love have to work hand in hand. And for all of us that maybe just to stop and ask God, God, what might you want to do with your church? Our church, if each of us could be focused on the main things being the main things. And so um, we're going to read this. We're going to read the whole passage here, chapter 8 and part of 9. In the Pew Bible, it's page 1780. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In the Pew Bible, it's 1780. And would you just, would you read along in your Bible as I read right here? Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that 
an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? As do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat, it, eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the Lord say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, it is, too, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words that Paul wrote, that the Holy Spirit wrote, and use them in our hearts this morning? Help us to engage not just our heads, but our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, would you be at work in our hearts as we hear your word and we consider these things. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for giving us a reason to sing this morning and a reason to worship together. 
Thank you for your word. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to focus mostly on chapter 8 and take a little bit, uh, take a little look at chapter 9 this morning. uh, Because in this letter, um, Paul has been asked to respond to several specific things, several specific questions from the church. Uh, A few weeks ago, we looked at the first question, Kip dealt with that. The first question response was found in chapter 7 when Paul addressed the proponents of celibacy. And, And when Paul gave his first answer there, he walked a wise tightrope, showing the benefits to both called single celibacy and faithful marriage. Both are callings. Both can be lived in a godly way. Both can be lived unashamedly in a godly way. And uh, and Paul is going to be wise in walking a tightrope again today in chapter 8. Because we get the second question here and response in chapter 8. The problem is with meat, or rather, those who won't eat meat. And when you read this passage, when it says food, we're referring to meat here. Remember the temple worship that's going on? Remember the temple worship here in Corinth? Um, Those who come to know the Lord, uh, know the Savior, have done so either out of Judaism or out of this pagan temple worship. So in in this temple worship, animals were sacrificed in these pagan religious rituals in the temple. And now some of that meat was eaten in the temple by the priests, and some of that meat was eaten in the temple by the people as they participated. The rest of the meat was sold in the market, and this was the supply chain of the day. Now, you and I don't usually associate our meat with anything. Uh, Maybe you do. I associate my meat with Dale and Jolie Miller. But other than that, you probably don't associate your meat with anything. Um, If you weren't rich, the only way you got meat was meat from this supply chain, this spiritual supply chain, meat associated with pagan worship, worship, which brings us to the issue at hand. Apparently, some of the more mature believers in the church had asked Paul to settle the issue of whether or not it was okay for the church to eat this meat that had been sacrificed to these idols. Now, some of these progressive, maybe we could also call them rich believers, said things like, our Christian liberty allows us to eat this meat. It's permissible. Whereas some of the restrictive, maybe poor believers said, we can't eat this meat that's been associated with these practices. For us, it's sin. And Paul needed to give an answer to everyone. So he started by affirming the correct knowledge that these progressive Christians had. In verses 1 to 6 here, he says, yes, you're right in your knowledge. Your understanding of the spiritual nature of what is going on is correct. In essence, your theology is correct. They knew that, verse 4, an idol is nothing at all in the world. An idol is just an inanimate object. They were mature in this type of thinking. They understood that. They, They realized this. They knew that there is no God but one. That God has no legitimate competition. He is it, regardless of what anybody wants to think. It doesn't matter what anyone else wants to craft or fashion or conjure or create. There is no other God. Those coming out of Judaism knew that quite well. If it's not real, it's not real. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods and people have crafted many gods, yet for us there is but one God the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. 
They understood that there is only one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that through the Son, Jesus, they had freedom. And their theology was correct. What they understood concerning God and idols and freedom was right. And it's important to think correctly. For us as believers, it's important to think accurately, to know what's really true, and then to be able to lean into it. That's part of the beauty of placing our faith in Jesus. When we come to know Christ, we get to now grow up and start living out the benefits of what is true. You know, some of those truths that we get to start leaning into and and discovering as we come to Christ, um, well, there's lots. A few of them are these. Uh, Among many other things, we move from slavery to adoption and freedom. Jesus said in John 8, it says, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We know that when we come to know Christ, we move from slavery to now becoming sons and daughters in the family. We know, we know other things. We know that we move from unrighteousness to somehow becoming God's righteousness. Paul later writes to the same church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And the the amazingness of 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We move, there's there's a transformation here. We move from old and guilty to new and righteous, and it's this miracle of God. We also know we move from guilt to right standing before God. And Paul writes in Romans 3, but, from, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ from guilt to right standing. And we also know that positionally, Positionally, we move into a new, liberated, and liberating relationship with God. A new, liberated, and liberating relationship with God. We move into and get to lean into positional freedom in Christ. Not just freedom from sin, but now freedom from condemnation. There's nothing we can do now that will make us any more loved by God. We can't earn any more favor by what we do or don't do. And we get to move in our maturity into that ability to live out that freedom. We really are now free and not condemned if we're in Christ. Is that the kind of Christianity you came into? That free, liberated, and liberating Christianity? 
Is that the kind of faith you came into? Is that the kind of church you came into when you came to know the Lord? Some of us would say, absolutely. And there's other of us in here that would say, I don't know. I don't think so. There's not, there's not been much that feels liberating about my faith in Jesus. We're going to get to that in just a moment. In regards to eating meat that had been served to idols, these young, immature, restrictive believers were not free in their hearts. And they couldn't make a distinction between what had been associated with their old way of living and new freedoms now available to them in this gray area. This was a gray area. And how other people used that same freedom in a gray area was killing them. As Paul wrote, some were still so accustomed to the stigma attached to this meat, thinking that this, been, this had been sacrificed to a God, that it damaged their conscience. For them, eating this meat tempted them back into that position that they had previously been in, back into the worship of these gods, back into that old dead life, what it felt like to be far away from God. And Paul said, yes, I agree with you. Their conscience is weak. And they can't participate without defiling their own conscience. So for the immature, because they couldn't participate without defiling their own conscience in a gray area, their tendency was to make clear by additional rules what God had left alone. Their tendency was to make clear by additional rules what God had left alone. And for the mature, Paul was making clear that these other that these free progressive believers were correct in their understanding of what was true. Their theology was correct. They were free to exercise this freedom. It was their right. At which point, it would have been so easy for these mature believers to say, that's right, we thought so. Thank you, yes, Paul, thank you. Exactly as we thought. Thanks for proving the point. These so-called gods are really no gods at all. Tell these immature believers to grow up. And stop pressuring us not to eat meat or use our freedoms. Tell them to, restop, tell them to stop restricting us. Um, as Lee Corso would say, not so fast, my friend. Because Paul wanted these mature believers to stop and think about something. Paul continues, no, verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Not everyone understands as you do. Some of these weak Christians were still so used to the old way of thinking that when they ate that meat, their conscience was defiled. They didn't understand in the same way as the more mature believers did. And so he wanted the stronger Christians to stop and consider a few things. He wanted them to stop and consider the heart, the issue at heart here. Because these believers could have been so arrogant. Paul continues though, verse 8. In case you want to feel arrogant in this, verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Paul was saying, in this gray area, there's no spiritual advantage or disadvantage to eating the meat and exercising your rights. And these mature believers had more to consider in this issue than just what they were going to eat. Because the crux of the issue, the issue at heart, is in verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. The issue was not that these immature believers were offended that others ate meat while they could not. That wasn't the issue at all. The issue was that these young, immature believers had come out of this temple worship life. They did not want to go back to that old way of life. However, when they saw older, wiser believers 
using their legitimate freedoms to eat this meat, whether in the public arena or at home, they were emboldened to sin against their own conscience. That was the issue. These young believers were sinning as they defiled their consciences by watching the freedom of others and then doing it themselves. Paul was going to, Paul talks more about this other places, specifically uh, Romans 14. I, I would encourage you, I'd encourage you to go read that whole chapter on your own another time. But in, in Romans 14, he says this, so whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. These younger believers could not in faith participate, and for them it was sin. To these immature believers, this was a faith issue, therefore a sin issue. These more mature believers were sinning against these younger believers by leading them by example down this path. And, and Paul actually made it really clear, you're sinning against God. When you use your legitimate freedoms and cause other people to sin in this way, this is a heart issue. By the way, um, we read this and we think, maybe Paul did not really answer the question they were asking. If you're wondering that, he actually does get, in, in chapter 10, in, and then 14 to 22, he gets to a really specific point. And he, he's only going to dr- really draw one line here in regards to this meat and eating and whether they, they should or should not do it. He, in verse, um, well, what he really says is don't eat in overtly pagan rituals. Don't do that. That's my line in the sand. There was a line he wanted them to draw even in their freedoms. To Paul, love for other believers mattered more than his own personal legitimate rights. And we have to choose to make that personal. For us, will love for others matter more than our own personal legitimate rights as a believer? Quickly, look at chapter 9, the issue at hand here. As Paul's writing this letter in response, he was really responding to a number of things. One of the, the things he was responding to is the criticism he was facing by, by a church who felt like Paul did not, he didn't um, measure up. You know, Paul, you're not eloquent enough. You're not dynamic enough. You can't hold yourself well enough in the public arena against all the other philosophers of the day. You're just not good enough. You're not fitting what we think you should be like or what we want you to be like. It's weird. Paul here is actually making a defense of his right to not take money from them. I'll let Kit preach on that next week. It's it's a weird argument he's trying to make. Um, Yes, he had a right to receive compensation from them. Um, But he knew that they wanted, what they wanted for him was for him to fit into their pocket into their patron system that Sam talked about weeks ago, right? This idea that uh, more uh, wealthy individuals would become patrons for others in society and help take care of them. But what they was expected then was influence and esteem and honor. And Paul just didn't want to have anything to do with that. He did not want to fit in anyone's pocket. He did not want to be indebted to anybody else. For Paul, he says, the only person that I want to be indebted to is Jesus, I want to be indebted to Jesus. I want to be indebted to the gospel. That's where my indebtedness is going to lie. And so for him, Paul, uh, 
verse 12, the second half of verse 12 is key. He says, but we did not use this or these rights. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul gave up every legitimate right that in the moment would detract from someone else being able to hear the gospel or detract from his ability to give the gospel away in a free manner. For Paul, love for the Lord and for the church mattered more than his own personal legitimate rights. Well, as we think through these two chapters, just the heart of the issue for us, and you'll notice I'm not trying to flesh out maybe some of the things that first come to mind for all of us when we think of weaker Weaker, stronger brothers and sisters. Maybe there's, there's a whole litany of things that we all have to just stop and pause and consider. Okay, I'm not trying to bring out the individual issues. But I would love for us to think through some things uh, here as we close. The, the issue for us. And the first is this. This is not in your notes. You're welcome to write this down. Uh, our theology and love must go hand in hand. Our theology and our love must go hand in hand. It's possible to be right in our theology and wrong in our love. It's possible to be right in our thinking and wrong in our application and implementation of that love. Right theology loves people. Remember for Paul, love for others mattered more than his own personal legitimate rights. And when we get that wrong, it can be really damaging when, when, we, when we divorce the two. Um, I think it's what made Jesus so frustrated. When you read the Gospels, um, over in Luke, uh, Luke 13, if you notice, like, Jesus just kept on having run-ins, and he was frustrated. A lot of it had to do with what was going on on the Sabbath, right? In, in Luke 13, uh, we see that Jesus, you don't have to turn here, Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath. And, and the synagogue leader was indignant, He's just so frustrated. And Jesus said, you hypocrites. Don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what had bound her? Uh, next chapter, he's on another Sabbath. In chapter 14, there's a man who had abnormal swellings on his body, and Jesus just looks around. And he says, hey, is this lawful? What I'm about to do, is this lawful? Silence. And he heals the man, and, and then he asks the people around him, he says, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? See, the religious leaders, their, their, their theology and their love were just, they weren't working hand in hand at all. In fact, they were causing others to stumble and fall away in their application. They missed the heart of people. Guys, we know, we know Jesus' heart in this, right? Those of us that would, by our, by our actions, cause other people to walk away. Right? Even, think about what he said even in, in, Mark, um, in Mark chapter 9, and he's looking at his, his 12, and he says, hey, you see these kids, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to, be, to stumble, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and be tossed into the sea. That's what I think about this. That's what I think about this. Friends, there's something better than our rights. There's something better than clinging to our rights. There's a better way forward. It's found in Philippians 2. 
In Philippians 2, uh, in verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. That's our better way. Theology and love must go hand in hand. It's possible to be right in our theology and damaging in our love, especially in the gray areas. The second thing to consider, um, and I want to say this wisely, if you are the immature brother or sister, could I encourage you to please grow up into your freedom? Would you please grow up into your freedom? When we come to know Christ, we're not given a license uh, to sin. We know that. But neither are we given a license for legalism. Because there can be two extremes when we come to know Jesus. Those that abuse freedom and those that refuse to grasp freedom. The freedom given to them because of now their position in Jesus. I get why this is hard. Um, I get why this is hard when many of us come to know Christ and we, we want to set up and establish a lot of guidelines and rules and boundaries. And Every parent understands this, Right? Every parent understands this because what do we do with our kids? We set up rules and guidelines and boundaries. Why? For their own good. It's why I put a, it's why I put a gator on my fireplace. It's why, it's why I tell my kids, don't touch the grill. Don't touch the stove. And we put up boundaries and we keep them away. One of my, one of my boys learned the hard way when he was little. Right? On the grill. And as a parent, I could do one of two things. I could either keep those boundaries up in place forever or eventually I could help them understand that those boundaries were for a time because now you have to understand how to properly use a grill. <laughs> You're going to want to grill something really good to eat. Eventually, the artificial boundaries don't work. And for all of us, not just parents, it's easier to craft artificial boundaries than to help develop someone's heart. And it's easier to craft artificial personal boundaries in gray areas than to address our own hearts. And can I just encourage you, and I would just say this so kindly, if, if this is you and you have been living your Christian life crafting personalized, individual, artificial boundaries, to follow Jesus, there might be a better way. And I would encourage you to talk to another brother or sister who loves you and understand what freedom in Christ is and say to them, would you help me? I want to walk free. I want to be able to live out of my position. I don't want to have to create and live by all these artificial rules and boundaries that I've set up. Would you please grow into your freedom if you were that immature brother or sister? Um, the third is a question. What are we willing to put up with for the sake of new believers? Do you think about the, you think about the issue that's going on here? And it's just so intriguing. You know, we we devolve when we. I want to ask, okay, who's the weaker, or stronger person in this? I think we're missing the point. Um, can you imagine our church? If these are the types of issues we get to deal with on a regular basis because God keeps giving us new believers all the time. Can you imagine that problem? I can. I, I, I want that problem. 
I want that problem. I want that problem for every single person in here, for you to be able to say, yeah, here's what I'm dealing with right now. I've got this new young believer, and they don't know anything. And we really constantly struggle through things because they're coming out of an old pattern and an old way of life. And I constantly realize I have to explain things, and I have to talk about things, and I am constantly forced to set aside my own legitimate rights for the sake of their growth. Can you imagine if everybody in our church can point to somebody else like that? Either a not yet believer or a brand new believer who says, I am sacrificing so much for them to grab hold of what God wants for them. That's my dream for us as a church family this year. That if anybody asks you, say, tell me, who you got? Who's your person? Who are you investing your life into right now that doesn't know Jesus or is brand new in their faith? You can just say, this is who they are. And I'm loving every minute that I get to set aside my personal rights for their sake. Can you imagine what, it would, what that would do in our church family and in our community? The last thing, would you pray about that? Would you say, God, would you give us this problem? God, would you give us new believers this year? Would you give us the messiness that comes with new believers who do not think like we do? Somebody said, probably Tom Julian said this, I don't know, said that we're planting gospel seeds, not transplanting trees. Imagine if all of us get to plant deeply into the lives of other people this year. We're not, reproducing, we're not reproducing finished products. We're planting gospel seeds in the lives of other people and then helping them to grow in their faith. Would you join me in praying that God would make our church messier because people are coming to know him and that we are forced to deal with this issue every week? Would you join me in praying for that? What's it gonna take for us to be that kind of church? What's it gonna take for you and I to be those kind of believers who are willing to set aside every legitimate right we have for the sake of someone else coming to know Jesus. Would you pray with me? And, and might, I, might I add, if, if you would like to pray about that, at the end of the service here, there'll be some people up front that would love to pray with you. If it's, if it's praying that you have been holding on to the yoke of legalism in your heart and you want somebody to pray with you about how to find freedom. We'd love to pray with you. If you want help, just even thinking through who are the people that God has placed around me that I can invest my life into, we'd love to pray with you and talk with you or any other thing. We'd love to pray with you. But oh God, make us that kind of church, a messy church where we are forced to deal with this issue all the time. God, make us a, a church that is willing to put other people's needs above our own, even our legitimate rights as sons and daughters of the king so that they could grow in their faith. God, help us to be that kind of church this year. We love you, Jesus. Amen.